Good morning, everyone. Welcome to Spin Class. We're talking politics. Your host, Michael Fragan, here on the Nachum Siegel Network, NachumSiegel.com, and on the NSN app. And I'm happy and proud to have as my guest this morning, William Daroff, the CEO of the Conference of Presidents of Major American Jewish Organizations, also just known as the President's Conference, because that other title is very long. Uh, William is an experienced Washington political hand, having held positions in the Republican Jewish Coalition, as well as the Jewish Federations of North America or the United Jewish Communities, however, whatever the difference is between those. William is essentially what one would call out here, outside of DC, the Jewish establishment. And uh, as CEO, he kind of leads the Jewish community, the organized Jewish community in the United States. So William, welcome to Spin Class. Thank you very much, Michael. It's a pleasure to be with you and with uh, the teeming masses of uh, Spin Class tears. Fantastic. So William, talk to us for a second about what it means to be CEO of the Conference of Presidents. Uh, maybe you can also talk about the, I think it's 51 organizations that make up your constituency. I mean, that might ebb and flow as a number. And uh, and then we'll talk for a little second, a couple seconds about how you got there. Sure. It is uh, 53 organizations that make 53. up the Conference of Presidents. Okay. Uh, we span the entire uh, political, religious, uh, ideological spectrum of the Jewish community, including the Orthodox, uh, conservative and reform religious streams, uh, major organizations like the American Jewish Committee and the Anti-Defamation League and APAC, uh, as well as uh, organizations uh, of the right, like the Zionist Organization of America, ZOA, and organizations of the left, like Americans for Peace Now, uh, and everything in between. And we are the umbrella organization that tries to bring them together to amplify the voice of the American Jewish community, uh, both here uh, in the United States uh, and abroad. And what does it mean as you, as the head, as the CEO, you're, you're essentially the spokesman, you're the organizer, you're the, the shepherd. I mean, give, it, give us an idea about what it means, because I assume all these organizations don't give up their own identity when they come into your umbrella. So the, I, I, I'm just going to go out on a limb there with that one. <laughs> yeah, that's a thin, thin ice, Michael. The uh, it's actually it goes to our founding story, which was uh, after the Suez crisis in the late 1950s. And I'm sure your listeners know it well. But the sort of bottom line was that President Eisenhower sided with the Egyptians uh, as distinct from siding with the French, the British and the Israelis. And after the Suez crisis, the American Jewish leadership went to John Foster Dulles, who was secretary of state for whom the airport here in Washington is named. And uh, and Dulles said the problem was we had 12 different Jewish organizations knocking on our door saying this is what the Jews think. Get your act together. Come with to us with one voice and speak with one voice. And so uh, after about a year uh, in uh, 1957, the Conference of Presidents of Major American Jewish Organizations was formed in order to be uh, that one centralized voice. The joke, though, is that instead of 12 organizations knocking on Dulles's door, there were now 13 organizations knocking on his door. Uh, there's original 12 plus the Conference of Presidents. But it's a it's an it's a uh, it's a good point that you bring up. But it's one where the organizations are looking to strengthen the voice of the community or looking to uh, have one body that can, uh, again, amplify that voice and look for areas of commonality of agreement and consensus um, where they can work together. And then also we're empowered to work, uh, as I said, with our government here in the United States, with the Israelis, with other foreign governments. Uh, on behalf of the American Jewish community, community and our uh, interests. And when the if you if 
there is a consensus, right? I mean, consensus is, uh, especially nowadays in 2020, um, and we see that as on a daily basis in our politics, and I'm sure there are Jewish politics or Jewish internal politics that many of us don't know about or aren't privy to, and I'm not asking you to disclose those. But what I'm saying is, how do you, you know, how do you come to navigate and work with uh, organizations that would seem to be somewhat diametrically opposed in their goals and aims with regards to the specific issues that you're advocating for? Uh, and I, I don't, I can give you the examples based on the list that I see in front of me, but, uh, but I'm sure you know exactly, you know, kind of who I might be talking about. I mean, there's more client of the ZOA, I'm not to pick on him, but has some very different views and opinions than some of your other constituencies? So we, uh, it's, it's a complicated question, uh, for sure, uh, much as our community is a complicated community. The short answer is that we operate under consensus. So we're not taking votes uh, of each, uh, on each uh, semicolon, in each comma, in each statement, but rather it's based on a consensus of where the community is, where organizations are. And Despite uh, the source that we know that's out there, I'd say that on 75%, 80% of the issues, 85% even, uh, the community and the organizations are, are in the same place. And so the key is to focus on those areas of agreement and commonality, because I think that too often we as a Jewish community ignore that and focus on where the divisiveness is and where uh, the smoke is. And certainly uh, the news media doesn't uh, doesn't often do headlines saying uh, Jewish organizations agree uh, comedy breaks out. Uh, what sells newspapers is showing uh, the divisiveness and trying to um, yeah, try to make that smoke into more uh, fire. Uh, so there are there are many issues that uh, where there is agreement on and on the issues where uh, there is some disagreement. Generally, we're able to find consensus. Well, right, because agreement is not fun and conflict is, is sells papers, as as we know from politics as well. And politic and conflict raises money. I mean, nobody uh, nobody sends you a sends you a solicitation email saying I'm making peace with the other side. They say I'm fighting for you uh, all the time. So they actually have to back that up a little bit with fighting. But let's back up for a second a little bit uh, just to talk about you and your professional journey. Uh, as CEO, you are replacing, or I guess stepping into the shoes of Malcolm Holmline, a legendary political figure who kind of, uh, I guess, personified in some ways, and not to use, give it too much, but I think it, in some ways he was kind of ubiquitous within the, uh, within the president's conference, kind of identified with the president. Uh, and it's a multi-decade tenure, and you're stepping in there uh, into that role. Where have you come from? What is your back? You know, what is your background? At least for the audience, you know, I know we've been friends for a long time. But give us an idea, a flavor of uh, what you are, what you've gone through, and professionally, and your experience professionally, and some of the things that you're going to bring a little bit new to uh, the Jewish leadership position. Sure. Uh, so to start with, uh, Malcolm Holmline uh, is my predecessor, and I, I still work with Malcolm very closely. He is uh, very much uh, engaged with the Conference of Presidents as our vice chair. Uh, he is uh, very much a mentor and has been someone who, uh, uh, as I've started this job and before, is someone who has uh, been very helpful in, in guiding me as I move forward. And he 
Uh, he is uh, definitively an icon and someone who uh, it's a pleasure to work with and a pleasure to. Oh, succeed. I, I should add, I should add that he does have a spot every Friday morning on this network together with Nachum Siegel around seven forty, seven thirty, seven forty a.m. So uh, you got to plug the network as well. Anyway, sorry, Dillian, go ahead. Absolutely, anything to plug the network. Uh, so uh, Malcolm is uh, is a good friend and is a mentor and is an icon and someone who uh, literally has been. Uh, at every major uh, American Jewish event uh, and Israeli event uh, for decades. And so it's uh, it's a learning experience and an honor to be uh, working with him. My background is one that uh, starts with politics. I worked on my first uh, campaign when I was seven years old, uh, working for a candidate for village council, uh, going door to door, passing out uh, leaflets. Uh, and then in 1980, when I was going into the seventh grade, uh, I got uh, caught up in the whole Ronald Reagan revolution uh, and became a Republican and a Republican activist. And for the next uh, uh, 25 years or so, uh, was involved in uh, Republican politics. I managed campaigns for Congress. I worked on uh, three presidential campaigns, national presidential campaigns. I worked as a political appointee in the first uh, George H.W. Uh, Bush administration, as well as uh, in Ohio politics, uh, because I'm an Ohioan and work for the governor of Ohio. Uh, and uh, also along the way, I uh, went to school and got a bachelor's, master's in political science and law degree from Case Western Reserve University in Cleveland, uh, as well as a certificate in the history of Eastern European Jewry and the Holocaust from Jagiellonian University in Krakow, Poland. Uh, so I was... Uh, That's uh, one you do not hear too often, that, uh, you don't that, hear that degree granting institution. There you go. Okay, yeah, good. Yag- Jagiellonian University, my, my fellow alum Copernicus, the class of 1364... Uh, so we're uh, I'm in good company there. And, Excellent and, company. And the best news uh, of, of that uh, trip uh, and the studying at Yaglan University is, is that uh, it was on that program that I met my wife uh, 25 years ago, and uh, she was getting her uh, master's degree at NYU at the time, uh, and we were just down the hall from each other in Krakow. So it's uh, an important uh, important for me and my family uh, as well. Um, so, uh, after practicing law for a bit and being involved in politics, I decided that I wanted to, uh, be more in go- involved and engaged professionally in the Jewish community and went to go work at the Republican Jewish Coalition, uh, which is where you and I met Michael, um, 20 years or so ago or so, uh, and, uh, was the deputy executive director of the Republican Jewish Coalition, uh, from, uh, until 2005, at which point I became post-partisan and post-ideological. And went to work for the what is now the Jewish Federations of North America as the senior vice president for public policy and director of the Washington office, basically the the lobbyist for the Jewish Federation system. And now you are now you're in your current, in your current position. So actually, it's a great segue because I actually want to know in this hyperpartisan environment what it means to be postpartisan. I haven't yet graduated to being postpartisan, so. If and when that happens to me, I want to know what to expect. Well, there's there's time for you to mature uh, and and join us. There, there always is. Um, for me, uh, joining the Jewish Federation of North America after having a, a very partisan uh, background uh, was about recognizing that uh, that partisanship is not helpful uh, necessarily. It wasn't helpful for me in a professional capacity uh, as it related to Jewish federations. Uh, we had to work with Republicans and Democrats alike. Uh, we have uh, had leaders uh, who uh, were big uh, machers within the Republican Party and big machers within the Democratic Party. Uh, and so it was important for the Jewish federations to be able to craft a path that uh, they didn't uh, get stuck in a, in a partisan cul-de-sac 
Uh, and I continue uh, with that uh, with the conference of presidents where similarly, uh, we need to work with Republicans and Democrats alike. Uh, the change in administration uh, that's uh, occurring here in Washington uh, as we speak is, uh, you know, is a prime indicator of that. Um, and for me, it means uh, you know, sort of two things. One is I can play on both sides of the aisle. Uh, I can play with Republicans and Democrats, uh, which is uh, you know, enjoyable and engaging to um, to be deeply involved and have uh, that uh, sort of working relationships and friendships. Uh, and beyond that, it's uh, to, I think, underscore the point that as a Jewish community, it's important for us to be uh, active beyond partisan labels, to not be limited by partisanship, to not um, say that, uh, you know, I am a Republican and only work with Republicans, or I'm a Democrat and not work with Democrats. And as a community, uh, we need to be uh, have an open mind and have the willingness to work with uh, whomever we can work with. Now, that's not to say that individuals like yourself, Michael, who are active on behalf of the Jewish community, shouldn't be partisan. It's incredibly important for us to have key contacts uh, on both sides of the aisle whom we can turn to uh, for help with partisan Republicans and partisan Democrats. So I'm just saying as a professional, uh, for me, uh, the place to be is in a place where I am no longer have a, a big capital R after my name or, or a capital D for that matter. For sure. And this is Spin Class. We're talking to William Daroff, the CEO of the Conference of Presidents of Major American Jewish Organizations. And William, the politics right now, I mean, no question. I, I think right now, literally, we're in this transition time and I'm going to go I'm going to go out on a limb as a Republican and say there will be a transition on January 20th, uh, despite the fact that many people who I speak to on a almost daily basis uh, have not yet come to terms with that. Um, you know, there's there's just so much that people in our community, meaning the Jewish community, um, are uh, are looking at that divides us politically, meaning it's just um, it, whether it's religious, non-religious, um, and I don't want to just say orthodox, non-orthodox, but there is a different, you know, uh, there's a difference or, you know, right wing, not right wing, centrist, political, non-political. I mean, there's all kinds of different organizations within your constellation. Uh, you're looking at and some may have come to terms with uh, a Biden administration. Some may not have come to terms with the Biden uh, administration. Um, some will be fighting uh, to the to the very end. Some will be looking to have Israel as a wedge issue. Uh, I think that that is no question about that. Um, and some will be saying, as you do, that Israel must be a bipartisan issue and we really should have no daylight between the things, um, you know. I guess my question is, what's your game plan for navigating that? Uh, and I'm not trying to, you know, not to push you into a corner vis-a-vis -vis your organizations, but I'm sure you're, you're, you know, your experienced Washington guy. Um, and I, it's hard for me to see how, you know, how to navigate it. So what, what's, where's your, and who do you, and who do you rely on essentially for, you know, for the kind of to say, Hey, you know, this is how we, you know, this is how we play it. So uh, excellent questions all. The bottom line is that, again, I believe that on 75, 80, 85% of issues, we as a Jewish community are in the same place. And I think that that's the case as well uh, for much of Congress, that when you look, despite uh, the noise that you hear, uh, when you look at, uh, at actual votes that matter, um, there are massive supermajorities of Republicans and Democrats uh, who are supportive. There was 
uh, two summers ago, a resolution on BDS that passed with um, almost 400 votes uh, out of 435 uh, members of the House. Um, so I think uh, 20 some uh, Democrats uh, were the ones who voted against it. But uh, you had 200 some Democrats uh, plus who were voting for it. Uh, and so, as Steny Hoyer said at the APAC policy conference a few years ago, all the attention uh, is on uh, a squad of uh, three freshmen, but there are uh, 47 freshmen or whatever the number was at the time. But the squad uh, has now grown. It has grown to five. <laughs> uh, but uh, and, and not to minimize uh, the danger and, and the impact of that wing uh, of the Democratic Party on, uh, on a solid U.S.-Israel uh, relationship on the majority that exists, but I think that it's much as we spoke about uh, the media in general looking for conflict and focusing on conflict, at the end of the day, the vast majority of Republicans and the vast majority of Democrats in Congress uh, are supportive of a strong U.S.-Israel relationship. So the issue will be how to try to ensure that those, frankly, on both sides of the aisle who are looking to, uh, as you uh, phrased it, uh, bring about a wedge issue or, or looking to focus on, um, on, uh, on difficult issues, uh, will try to push for votes uh, that will wedge folks in one direction or another. And as much as I am a fan of uh, purity as it relates to uh, U.S.'s relations, that uh, people should have a view that, uh, um, you know, is precisely the view that I want them to have, uh, I think that, uh, that uh, exasperating those differences and, uh, and looking for ways to make trouble uh, does not serve the U.S.'s relationship in a, in a productive way and actually... Um, serves uh, its uh, its to its detriment. And so, uh, what I encourage everybody to do is to to look at the big picture and to try to focus on um, on the solid relationship rather than again looking for um, thin ice uh, to push people uh, into. Um, as it relates to uh, uh, who we track with, uh, you know, organizationally, um, we are very much. Uh, in tune and in, in line with uh, with APAC and with the American Jewish Committee and with the Anti-Defamation League uh, and the Jewish Federations. I guess I could list all 53 uh, organizations uh, where the consensus is, but we, we feel like uh, our view is very much uh, part of that uh, mainstream consensus of uh, the American Jewish community and American organizational life. Um, there are many on the Hill that, uh, that we work with uh, across the board. I could, uh, you know, Ted Deutsch comes to mind who uh, from, from South Florida, who is the... Um, uh, ranking, <clears throat> excuse me, the <clears throat> chair of the subcommittee uh, on the Middle East and the Foreign Relations Committee of the House, uh, among many others who uh, who are engaged uh, in, again, trying to uh, ensure that uh, the U.S.'s relationship stays above uh, this partisan uh, bickering and food fighting. Okay, but inside the Democratic Party, if we could just look at elections and elections, as I tell everybody on a constant basis, and it's not any great uh, insight to say they have consequences. Primaries have consequences. We look at Elliot Engel, you know, being replaced uh, by uh, Jamal Bowman, who Jen joined the squad, uh, say, I mean, Elliot Engel as chairman of the Foreign Relations Committee uh, and Nita Lowy retiring, being replaced by a certainly more progressive Mondier Jones, hasn't joined the squad, but. You know, here in New York, um, we see on a more local basis the Democratic Socialists of America, now a significant force within New York City politics, going ahead and putting Israel on its no-fly list, essentially. I don't know if you're – how I'm sure you're aware of it, but the audience should be aware that they – on a questionnaire, a candidate questionnaire, 
asked their candidates to pledge not to visit Israel. Uh, that's the only country. I mean, you can go to any other oppressive, any, uh, I'm sorry, any oppressive regime throughout the world, but you can't go to Israel. Um, so there is something going on. Um, and look, there are issues on the right as well. I think, uh, I mean, QAnon is a very scary prospect from my perspective. But when we see pro-Israel stalwarts like Elliot Engel being replaced, and I'm not saying that was about Israel, but we do see uh, we do see a change. We do see a shift uh, internally within Democratic Party politics, and it's not necessarily in a direction that we would like. And I would just uh, throw on top of that is that I've heard from several Jewish organizations in New York that have tried over the, her first term to meet with AOC, and she has refused to meet with them. So it's not like they're not trying to engage with her fellow, her and her fellow travelers, they're not interested. So I'm sure that complicates your life and your job. Yeah, I, I do not want to understate um, the the certain the the problems, the issues that uh, that exist um, that you've talked about uh, on the uh, in the progressive ranks. Uh, it is uh, a problem not just within the Democratic Party, but within civil society in general that we, uh, through intersectionality and other efforts uh, by those who uh, seek to destabilize Israel, um, are uh, are piling on and are uh, in a way that uh, that really ignores the longstanding uh, progressive history of Israel and the progressive history of Jews who've been at the forefront. Uh, many of these uh, rights, uh, fights for rights and the like. Uh, I guess the point that I'm making is that um, that's not the entire Democratic Party. It's not the entire left. And, and while it is dangerous and it's something we need to uh, focus on and it's something that folks within the Democratic Party, frankly, uh, need to call out uh, in their own ranks, and many of them are and do, um, that uh, we shouldn't uh, overgeneralize and say that uh, because AOC gets so much print, uh, because you have this, uh, these issues with the Democratic Socialist uh, and others, that, uh, that that means that, uh, that Israel has lost half of its support uh, in the American political system. That's just not uh, correct. Uh, but again, I will say that uh, it is a danger. It's something that uh, we need to focus on. It's something that Democrats need to focus on. Uh, and it's also something, though, that we need to keep uh, in proper perspective and not uh, say that just because that crew is out there, that it means that everybody on the left and all Democrats are ipso facto um, anti-Israel. My my feeling these days, and one thing I and I'm not asking you to agree or disagree. It's it's the pretext to a question is that Israel seems to be a uniting issue on the Republican side and a dividing issue uh, for many on the Democratic side. Um, you know, that that wasn't always the case, as you mentioned, uh, that was, you know, you go back decades, uh, it was a divisive issue for many Republicans. I mean, support, you know, it would not not Israel itself, but, um, you know, foreign aid, et cetera. Those were sometimes divisive issues. But I want to talk for a second about the incoming Biden administration, since we're, we're, we're going with that. Um, a lot of people fear that it's going to be, you know, another Obama term. It's going to be some of the same people. It's the people who supported the Iran deal and forced Israel into all kinds of negative concessions. And the, if we've seen something over the last couple months with the Abraham Accords, it's that the Palestinian issue is not the determining or should not be the determining issue of all peace within the region. 
And uh, I think the President's Conference was kind of way ahead of its time in, in traveling to the Gulf and traveling to some of these countries that have now uh, have now taken the path towards towards peace with Israel. So uh, I guess within that, where do you think the Biden uh, what do you see so far from the Biden transition? What do you see from the Biden team going forward? And will they in what ways will they make changes uh, from the uh, Trump Middle East doctrine? Uh, sure. Uh, so first off, you're right about the Conference of Presidents being on uh, the cutting edge of, of relations with Arab and Muslim states uh, on behalf of the American Jewish community and in order to try to uh, build bridges between uh, Israel and those countries. Uh, Malcolm Holmline uh, first went to uh, the Gulf states 25 years ago. Uh, and uh, and since he and the conference have made a number of trips there, I was, in fact, uh, at a uh, in February, one of my last foreign trips was uh, in Riyadh, Saudi Arabia, where we met with key um, uh, key members of the, the royal court uh, and discussed uh, the very issues that we saw coming uh, to fruition over the last few months. Um, so it's, it, these are issues that the conference has been uh, front and center and engaging with uh, with many of these states. Uh, I do uh, take it um, at face value and based on conversations I've had with members of the Biden transition team that uh, while there's not much in the Trump foreign policy that the Biden team uh, will endorse and embrace, uh, they do say both publicly and privately that they plan to build on the Abrahamic Accord uh, relationships that have uh, that have been spawned uh, over the last few months, uh, and that that is something that they want to encourage. Uh, and so I'm I'm heartened by that. It is amazing, and I'm sure you followed it as well, and your your listeners have too, Michael. That 50,000 Israelis uh, spent part of uh, Hanukkah in uh, in in Dubai. Uh, it's, it's amazing just, that there uh, are so many flights. <laughs> that they can that you can get there so easily. That's that. It is. It is. And seeing them, the, I'm sure you saw on Facebook and elsewhere the menorah lightings and the parties and the. Malcolm Siegel uh, was there last week, so uh, I got the full the full lowdown. Excellent. Uh, so so that that's heartening to see. As far as the uh, Biden in general, um, he uh, 47 year uh, history uh, of being involved in in public policy. If you've heard. Uh, Biden speak once to a Jewish crowd. You've certainly heard him talk about uh, his story with Golda Meir uh, and their uh, their meeting in 1971 or thereabouts. Um, and beyond that, when when the vice president, when Vice President Biden, when President elect Biden talks about um, why he decided to run for president, he talks about Charlottesville and talks about the anti-Semitism that's there. So um, so it's close to his uh, heart and uh, uh, uh the issues related to the Jewish community, related to anti-Semitism, related to Israel. Um, a, he knows the players. He's known Bibi since uh, the time that, uh, that the prime minister was uh, UN ambassador uh, in the uh, late 1980s. Uh, he, uh, there's not going to be much on-the-job training necessary. Uh, he also, uh, frankly, during the Obama, Obama administration, was the good cop, uh, oftentimes, uh, to the bad cop. Uh, that was the president uh, or Secretary Kerry or the likes, that Biden would often be the one who would go in uh, and sort of try to bring people together. So he has that positive relationship going. As far as the appointments that go are going, you know, the uh, there's a the range of people within Democratic uh, foreign policy circles who could be chosen for these jobs um, uh, is, uh, is relatively limited on an ideological spectrum. Uh, you're not going to have a John Bolton uh, or a Donald Rumsfeld or uh, or a Michael Fragan uh, appointed uh, Secretary of State. Um, you know the the spectrum that we're looking at is is you know center center left uh, towards the Bernie Sanders uh, side of the equation, and 
the names that have come out thus far, uh, principally in, in Tony Blinken as the uh, incoming Secretary of State and Jake Sullivan as the National Security Advisor, um, as well as Ali Mayorkas uh, at uh, the Department of Human Serv- uh, Homeland Security, uh, are names that are very much from that sort of centrist part of the of the democratic uh, policy establishment. Uh, we're not seeing, thankfully, thus far, uh, folks from um, from the Sanders uh, reign, regime, from uh, the sort of more radical uh, left side uh, of the Obama administration and of the Democratic uh, establishment. And I think that's uh, very positive. Blinken is someone that uh, that I've worked with uh, throughout the Obama years, uh, both at the White House and the State Department. Uh, he was a central uh, party in our discussions uh, about freeing Alan Gross, uh, who was uh, a Jewish political prisoner uh, in Cuba. Uh, and that's where I, I worked with him uh, deeply. He, he toured at his announcement uh, ceremony when uh, when when uh, the president-elect announced him. He told a, a very moving story about his stepfather um, and uh, and the Shoah uh, and and just a, a meaningful person. So I'm I'm optimistic and upbeat um, that the group that is in there is a group that we can work with uh, and who are not looking uh, for conflict for the sake of conflict. And I'm hopeful. Uh, that they have learned uh, some of the lessons uh, of the Obama administration and what works and what doesn't work, and that um, they will focus on uh, on the sort of pragmatic side of trying to build relations and move things forward. One other quick uh, note is that with the Israeli elections coming uh, in just in just about 90 days, I think that uh, we won't see anything dramatic from the Biden administration uh, until the new uh, Israeli government forms. Uh, and to add one more layer on top of that, but that's a big uh, the, assumption that there will be a government forming even after the election. But we'll, we're going right, to have to leave that for a future show. <laughs> right. Well, I'd say that, uh, you're right, which I think would delay any sort of Biden action until such a government ends up forming. Uh, right. And I think a, a similar note is that there's an Iranian election coming up in, in May. Right. And I think similarly, the Biden administration will want to uh, walk gingerly as it relates towards uh, Iran policy so as not to um, empower the mullahs or others. And so I think with both both of those elections make it uh, less likely that the Biden administration will work with very dramatic sort of earthquake type um, policy pronouncements uh, in the at the very beginning as it relates to um, the issues of U.S.'s relations uh, and Iran. And, you know, frankly, they've, they've got a lot to work with, with, you know, COVID, COVID and COVID. Uh, and so, uh, right. So as far as I'm concerned, it'll be good to not have a big sort of earthquake uh shattering policy pronouncements and to uh, allow the relationships to to grow and to flourish uh, on their own time. Well, I'm going to go out on a limb and say that it's unlikely that BB is going to be using huge building size likenesses of him together with uh, Joe Biden in his campaign uh, for prime minister as that he did in the past. But that's just me going out on a limb. We're unfortunately out of time. We could talk about this all day. And William, I appreciate your time. William Daroff, the CEO of the Conference of Presidents of Major Jewish Organizations representing the Jewish community in the United States, in Washington, and around the world. Thank you so much for being here, and thank you for giving us your insight here to the audience here on Spin Class, here on the Nachum Siegel Network. Stay tuned for Jew in the City Speaks with Allison Josephs.